This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. work cut out for me today because it's a very special day. Uh, This is, for those of you that have been here this weekend, you understand that this was a women's conference all weekend, and as a result, I have pink behind me, which is a little awkward for a man to preach in front of pink, right? And maybe it's a cultural thing, but still a little awkward. And guess what day it is? It's Father's Day, and I have a pink background. (laughs) So to try and offset that, I am going to do an uber-manly message, okay? So I'm just preparing you for that. So I know it was a women's conference, and some of you are, you know, in that women's conference sort of mode, and uh, now we're going to go into man mode, okay? Which, you know, the great thing about the kingdom of heaven, it's a wonderful blend of the two. And that's a picture of successful life right there, is learning how to cherish both and that God, uh, when a woman is truly a woman and a man is truly a man, you have something very, very special that is kindled, and it's called life. So, uh, guys, are you prepared for a, a, an uber-manly uh, message? <clears throat> I know it doesn't really fit. It's like this really sweet, beautiful background, and then the game of chicken. So... This, if you've ever heard of the game of chicken, if you don't know about the game of chicken, you're probably just better off in life. This isn't necessarily the sort of game that nice, sweet people play. Uh, This is an arrogant, snarling, usually youthful uh, kid that just got his driver's license and, you know, doesn't know better in life uh, sort of game. But uh, throughout the years, this has appeared in various movies. And so if you try to describe the game of chicken, uh, it's a high risk, uh, I don't even want to say high reward sort of campaign, it's just sort of high risk uh, campaign, but you look very cool if you compete in the game of chicken. And it's usually two different uh, young boys that uh, have an attitude issue. Sometimes they have a rivalry, sometimes they're trying to win the girl and they want to show off for their buddies, whatever it is, but there's different ways you can play it, okay? You can get in your fast car, which is usually souped up and makes a big roaring sound when you put your your foot on the gas, you know, and everyone around is like, oh, that's a cool dude right there. And then you, you know, there's a cliff in front and you both head towards the cliff as fast as you can and whoever jumps out first is the chicken. And okay, and some of you could just stare back and go, are you serious? Very serious. Uh, that's why I'm saying this is a dumb game, okay? Who in the world would ever play this? There's other ways to play it. You have a bridge, and you have two guys that are equidistant apart from the bridge, but the bridge is a single lane. And so they need to make a choice as they're headed towards the bridge, who is going to peel off first? Or are they both going to crash on the bridge? We don't know. It's the game of chicken. Uh, One of the most common definitions for the game of chicken is a white line, so a long uh, dirt road, and they'll paint a white line down the middle, and both cars face each other, and you have to put your left wheel on the white line. And so both wheels are, you know, both left wheels are on the white line, and then you go as fast as you can towards each other, 
And obviously, if no one swerves, we have a head-on collision. But someone's bound to swerve, right? But who? Or will they swerve? Welcome to the game of chicken. Now, what in the world could I get a message out of that uh, doing? I mean, how in the world am I supposed to use that? So to win the game of chicken, this is the version we're going to use. Keep your left tire on the white center line. I think I even have a picture for you. Okay, so here is a, a picture. Ironically, it was like the police that made this picture a long time ago, and they're like, this is what you shouldn't do, oh boys. Uh, and why they're trying to promote this, I have no idea, in, indirectly. So there's the white line, and then you see the car swerving. Good job, guy. And so that's the chicken. As that other car drives by, he yells out, chicken! Right? And so one guy looks like the hero, and the other guy is the chicken. And if you're a young guy, you know what I mean by this. You don't want to be the chicken. Oh, no, you don't want to be the chicken. So this, I, my guess is this is a fake picture. Okay, that's, that's my, my best guess with it. But uh, this is what happens. The calamities of playing chicken and not swerving are pretty severe. Okay, now, like I said, this is likely Photoshopped, is my guess. Okay, I, uh, but it, it's pretty serious stuff. Now, I don't want any of you to grow up to be like Bertrand Russell, but I'm still going to quote him because he gives a good quote on the game of chicken. Uh, this sport is called chicken. It is played by choosing a long straight road with a white line down the middle and starting two very fast cars toward each other from opposite ends. As they approach each other, mutual destruction becomes more and more imminent. If one of them swerves from the white line before the other, the other, as they pass, shouts, chicken! And the one who has swerved becomes an object of contempt. I mean, come on, the guy swerved. I mean, can you think of anything weaker than that? As played by irresponsible boys, this game is considered decadent and immoral though only the lives of the players are risked. But when the game is played by eminent statesmen, dot, 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 no, there's more to the quote. You see, he's commenting on a social thing that is taking place in the United States, and it is a response to something known as a Cold War. So at the end of World War II, we are going to have issues with the Soviet Union. Stalin has taken command of the Soviet Union, and his follow-up to World War II is a little different than we had hoped. Now, we knew we were ideologically different than the communists over in the Soviet, Soviet Russia, but we hoped that we could work together in a follow-up to World War II. Instead, they sort of claimed their territory in Eastern Europe and wouldn't budge out of it. And so we ended up with guns ablazing, aimed right at each other and saying, you take one more move and we shoot, and they say the same thing. And it was, you know, desperate and dark. And it, uh, most of us in here have tasted a little of the Cold War. I mean, at least I shouldn't say most of us. There's a lot of us in here that have. And when I was growing up, I wouldn't say I was in the heart of the Cold War, but sort of I was. I, you know, I was born in 1970. And we had a lot of serious things. The Cuban Missile Crisis in, in 1962, probably the most significant thing in the Cold War. But there were some other major events that I grew up in. And when we were in school, in public school, we were shown videos, I don't know how they thought this was helpful, of the world being destroyed by a nuclear holocaust. And it's like, so what do we do if there's a nuclear holocaust? Well, um, you die. You know, it's like, oh, well, isn't that wonderful? I mean, it was such an odd thing to grow up, but it was a terror-filled time where 
the imaginations, I remember even little groups of huddles of adults that would talk about what they were going to do with their families if, you know, it was told that the, the, the nuclear uh, arsenal was delivered from uh, Soviet Russia and it was headed towards us. Because we were near NORAD, uh, which is in Colorado Springs, and that was going to be one of the key targets, we were told. And so there really wasn't any hope for us. So this one, I remember this one guy saying, yeah, I'm going to get my family in the car. We're going to drive straight to NORAD. We're going to just go right to the center. I just want to get it over with. It's like, that's what I'm growing up around. It's like, oh, well, that, that's very encouraging. Thank you that I could overhear that as a little 11-year-old kid. Wow. And so... What I'm going to describe this as is Bertrand Russell is commenting on something called brinkmanship. Brinkmanship is actually, it's one of those political terms that most of us probably don't, you know, say in our normal uh, speech, but it is a form of political maneuvering to try and cow and to quiet another country that is threatening you, is that you threaten them with a bigger threat. And both people are sort of growing taller and taller, saying, but I'll do this to you. But if you do that to me, I'll do this to you. And this is what many of us have grown up around in the, uh, in the political sphere. Here's a simple description of brinkmanship. This isn't the formal definition. This is like the informal definition. Two people are arguing and slowly escalating their threatening behavior in an attempt to get the other person to back down. And what if they don't back down? Well, you end up with something known as a Cold War. That is exactly what the Cold War was. And so this guy, John Foster Dulles, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State in Ike uh, Eisenhower's uh, reign, was 1953 to 1959. He was sort of the author of this. This is like a term. I don't know that he came up with the term, but it got termed this because this is what he was doing. It's basically the idea of bringing your nation to the brink of destruction to try and prove that you will not back down. So John Foster Dulles says it this way, the ability to get to the verge without getting into the war is the necessary art. If you are scared to go to the brink, you are lost. Now you thought chicken was only played by young stupid boys. When in actuality, governments play chicken all the time now. This is the art of politics, international politics. This is what many of us have grown up around. It's actually normal. And that's sort of one of the uh, snide comments made by Richard Armour. Uh, John Foster Dulles invented brinkmanship, the most popular game since Monopoly. That's uh, showing his opinion about it right there. So the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, Kennedy versus Khrushchev, this is a serious thing. Now, I didn't grow up in it, but in studying it, it was 13 days of American history that if any of you did go through this, I'm guessing you may remember it. It's sort of like most people remember when Kennedy was assassinated. It's like there's moments. I remember when Reagan was shot. There are moments that are, in, moments that are indelibly printed, but Kennedy is going to get on national broadcast and tell the nation what is taking place. That the Soviets have moved and set up nuclear missiles in Cuba, which is not that far away from the United States. And Kennedy is going to tell them to back down and to take them out. And if they don't do it, he is going to blockade, or I guess they had a different term, quarantine the country of Cuba from any more transport of Soviet Russian uh, ships in there. And, and then if they don't take them out, the United States is going to actually attack Cuba. And then the Soviet Union says, well, if you try and attack, we are going to attack you. 
And suddenly it's escalating and no one knows how to stop it. And brinkmanship is to continue to grow larger with your threats. And the fact that we were spared nuclear holocaust in 1962 is actually, you could almost look at it as supernatural. There's no way of describing it because how in the world did these two arrogant, pompous nations known as Soviet Russia and the United States of America, I know some of you are like, hey, you calling us pompous and arrogant? Well, we weren't backing down, believe me. And part of what we like as Americans is that we have a John Wayne attitude. That's what we like about Americans. Like, yeah, stick it to them. Yeah, we're not backing down. We're going to make you blink. We're playing the game of chicken. And that is exactly what was taking place in 1962. So there's a little cartoon of Kennedy and Khrushchev arm wrestling. It's good to see. You can see it's an American cartoon because Khrushchev is the one sweating. The Cold War, USA versus the Soviet Union. So Reagan, who I, I happen to like Reagan, uh, Reagan came in and he was the classic chicken player. So he comes in and he starts building our nuclear arsenal so big that the Soviet Union was scared to death. And then he builds, he's, he's, he's planting this idea of Star Wars. I don't know if you guys remember Star Wars, not the movie. It was a it was a technological tactic of being able to intercept the nuclear missiles coming from the Soviet Russia. You see, if you could do that, it takes away something like the mutually assured destruction. It's called MAD. That was guaranteed. It's like, okay, we shoot our, uh, our missiles at you. You shoot yours at us. We both die. Mutually assured destruction. It's like, this is, this is the most ridiculous thing anyone could ever come up with, right? But this is the world we live in. And so we have our nuclear warheads aimed at them. They have theirs aimed at us. And we're saying, you shoot at us, we'll shoot at you. Well, if you shoot at us, we'll shoot back. And it's like all of us are like, great, guys. This is just wonderful to live in the world that you guys have helped to create. And yet at the same time, it's hard to come up with a great solution of how to solve it. What do we take our nuclear missiles and, you know, get rid of them? Meanwhile, they have theirs aimed straight at us. Then we get destroyed. So when Reagan comes in, he solves it all by saying, and we can just intercept their missiles so that they never hit. Well, imagine how the Soviets felt about that. It's like, wait a minute, that's not mutually assured destruction. And so we have, again, brinkmanship. We're just like, you do that, we're going to do this. And so the tensions continued. Playing chicken with Bob. So this is my own personal experience with playing chicken. Uh, and so some of you are a little disappointed to know that Eric actually played chicken. But I didn't play it with an automobile. Uh, when I was in uh, college, this is freshman year, uh, I, I was a soccer player. My roommate was a swimmer. And his name was Bob. Isn't that a great name for a roommate in college? And uh, he had sort of the personality to fit the name Bob uh, as well. You can spell it backwards and it's still Bob. Uh, and both of us had something known as athlete's foot. I don't know if you've ever seen athlete's foot. It's very pretty. Uh, and this is a very manly message, by the way, that we're giving here. And our room didn't smell very good, our, our dorm room. And, that's, and we, we wanted it to be a nicer environment. If a girl stopped by, we wanted them to step in and go, wow, this is a nice room. It wasn't a nice room. And I mean, both of us were just constantly in training, sweating, bringing our stuff into the room. It doesn't matter what we did. It just smelled like a guy's room, and it was, which isn't pleasant. And so we had a problem with athlete's foot and, you know, just one of us, we just spread it, you know, to each other. So we needed to deal with it. And his dad had a solution. 
and uh, he, he had somehow sent over, this is before like email and text. I'm not sure how it got to us. Maybe it was a phone call. But I think Bob was supposed to write it down, but instead his, his dad's probably like, and now are you going to remember this? And Bob's probably like, yeah, I'll remember it. And it was something like three parts water, one part bleach. Or maybe it was six parts water, one part bleach. Maybe it was 10 parts water, one part bleach. Bob couldn't remember. And so, but he was pretty confident that it was uh, two parts bleach. Uh, no, one part, two parts water, one part bleach. So we, he made, we got into the, uh, the guy's bathroom and we sat on the counter and we filled up the basins uh, with two parts water and one part bleach. And then we stuck our feet in the water because we're going to get rid of this uh, athlete's foot once and for all. Okay, this is the cure-all solution. And so my feet are in this solution. And my feet almost immediately begin to sting. And so I look over at Bob and I'm like, how you doing? Uh, he's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm like, yeah, it's, you know, it has a little heat to it. He's like, yeah, it does. Uh, well, how long do you think we should keep our feet in this? I don't know. My dad said five minutes. Five minutes? Uh, five minutes? Uh, oh, okay. And I mean, my feet are ablaze. I mean, I am psychologically starting to fade. Like, this is torture, and I, I'm like giving way. I'm ready to give away all the coordinates and all, you know, different connections I have. I cannot handle this any longer. And I still, the two of us talk about it, you know, if, if you get us together, I still think Bob took his feet out first, right? <laughs> but we don't know. He thinks I did. And I, that's ridiculous. But it was one of those moments, the only reason I had my feet still in this ridiculous solution was because Bob had his in that. And there was no way I was going to be the first one to cow to this solution. So I take my, we finally get our feet out. And I used to have rather hairy legs. Everything that was in the solution was completely seared. I just had like bald legs. And so <laughs> ladies, if you ever want a, a way to shave your legs a little easier, I think it's two parts water, one part bleach. <laughs> so the key to winning at chicken is don't blink. Now, some of you are trying to figure out how there is a spiritual lesson in this. All you know is, okay, I'm not gonna be dumb like Eric. I'm not going to be dumb like, you know, these, you know, politicians, you know, I'm not going to, so Eric, thank you for this great message, but what in the world does this have to do with my life? I'm giving you an important lesson here. If you wish to win at chicken, don't blink. Now, some of you are thinking, I'm not planning on playing chicken, and that would be good. I understand that. However, I need to forewarn you, whether you want to play at this game or not, you have an antagonist in your life that is going to draw you into a face-to-face -face encounter with a challenge. And it's not something you're even inviting into your life, but it's a lot like the game of chicken. So if you wish to win at chicken, I just crossed out don't blink, because that's the classic statement for it. I could say don't wince, but some other ways that I could say it. Don't wince, don't draw back, or as the Bible says it, don't shrink back. So let's look at a scripture, Hebrews 10, 38 through 39. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, 
My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So I have a chicken edition uh, version of this scripture. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he swerves from the white line, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who swerve from the white line and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and force the devil to swerve. I know some of you are like, I don't play chicken. Whether you want to or not, you are engaged in a face-to-face, head-on encounter with a power that is seeking to get you to swerve. God has called you down a narrow way. Left tire, white line. And the enemy wants to play a little chicken. And so you start seeing a big truck coming straight at you, and you're like, "Uh, God? And the enemy is trying to get you to swerve. He's trying to get you to shrink back. A roaring engine. See, that's one of the keys. If you're really cool, you have one of those vintage cars, and you sit there and roar roar your engine. And that, I don't know how it works, but it somehow intimidates uh, your opponent over there who has this little like type of engine. Like, oh boy, how in the world am I going to beat this guy? The engine is, the the devil is a roarer. You ever heard that said? There's actually a, a nice statement about that. He's called a roaring lion. His aim is your utter destruction. But one of the techniques he has is intimidation. And he wants to get you to believe that he is actually more powerful. Now, here's an interesting side note that I'm just going to throw this in. Many of us struggle with the issues of faith. But it's strange because we do have faith, but oftentimes we have faith more in the enemy's power over our life, in the enemy's ability to get us to compromise, in the enemy's ability to get us to flounder and to fumble and to get us off the white line, than we do in God's ability to triumph through us, in God's ability to keep us on that line. Isn't that an interesting thought to think you have faith, but why is it placed in the enemy? Why do you have such confidence that he's so good at what he does? He's defeated. And Jesus is greater. To win this game, we could call it chicken, you have to know your God. You have to know that what he says about that enemy that is coming straight at you is true. And if you know that, you will keep your left tire on that white line. The devil-imposed game of chicken. We wouldn't, just in and of ourselves, want to play this game. I guarantee that. If we pass you know, the, some card around and said, vote, would you like to play chicken or would you like to be left alone as you drive down the narrow way of life? You see, we have a devil-imposed game that is being placed upon us. We have chosen to follow Jesus and the enemy says, oh, really? All right, get out the semi-truck. We're headed straight at him. You see, the enemy wants to take us off our course. This is his game. This is what he does. So if you place your left wheel on that white line, believing in Jesus Christ, then he's coming for you. Now, some of you are like, Eric, this isn't helping. I was sort of struggling in knowing if I should give my life to Jesus, and now you're giving me that line. It's not my line. This is the word of God. This is actually what the devil threatens. Now, what you need to know is the truth. 
Because the truth sets you free. The truth helps you stay the course. If you don't know the truth, then there's a lot of noise, a lot of roaring that will take place that will cause you to, through the intimidation of the evil one, swerve out of the way. Oh, I don't, I don't want to be in his way. And that's his game. He's a bunch of bluff. He's a bunch of hot air. He's a bunch of noise. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. His game, to get you to blink, wince, draw back, shrink back, swerve off the white line. This is what he does. Now, when you know that, it actually helps you. You see, I don't ever like to just give, you know, conferences on Satan, the devil. I don't want to spend my time focused on what he is doing. But you need to have enough knowledge and enough understanding to recognize his game. And if you know his game, and you know what God says about him, that he is defeated, first of all, he's a liar, he's a cheat, He's a deceiver. He has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. You need to know that. Because the one coming against you is not to be trusted. But he works in the realm of bluff. Have you ever heard the term black magic? Black magic, it's a great name for it. Because it's what the enemy is up to. He wants to convince you, just as a magician could convince you that they have real power to saw someone in half and then put them back together. It's like, whoa, look at that, they have power. They don't actually have real power. And the enemy functions in the same way. He wants to con you into thinking that he has actually greater power than the one who lives inside of you. Which is why the word of God is important, because God wants to say, no, no, greater is he who is in you than he that is working that con job outside of you. You see, you need to know the truth because that's what sets you free. That's what roots you to that white line. That's what enables you to take on the bluff of the evil one. If you move off the white line, he gains a place of oppression. So one of the reasons, this is a legal thing for the enemy. The enemy understands the legalities of the kingdom of heaven. One of the best ways that I've described it is, just imagine that this is a house, and there's negative 10 degree temperatures outside. We're not concerned about that. Why? Because we're a temperature-controlled environment in here, and so we have a furnace, and it kicks on when we get to a certain temperature, and it maintains a certain temperature, and as long as our windows are shut and we have good insulation in here, we're fine. We've got a lot of body heat in here, guys. I mean, we're going to be great, even though it's very cold outside, and if you were to hang out outside, it would actually kill you if you were exposed to it for too long. That's extreme temperatures, but we're not concerned about that in here, which is why God might say, if this was our life, he might say, let's leave the windows closed. Don't open that window. It's negative 10 outside. So when you go over and deliberately disobey that and open the window, what happens? That temperature that is not meant to be in here actually begins to creep in. And we have snow drifts that begin to build up on the seats. Well, God didn't intend for you to have that in here, but the enemy's game is exactly that. 
It's to get you to violate the legal parameters of God's safety. And God says, you stay on the white line, you have my safety. I can protect you, you stay on that white line. So what does the devil want to do? He wants to get you to swerve off the white line. And what he gains then is the equivalent of outside temperature being able to influence an inside atmosphere that was never meant to have that chill. And so if you are in a life right now that has an open window, what should you do? If it's negative 10 outside, you're feeling a draft, what would you do? Well, you would shut the window. That's a classic dad job. For a Father's Day message, isn't that perfect? Shut the window. You know, nix the draft. You know, that's like, oh, classic dad stuff. I'm always like, I feel a draft, guys. And you're always thinking energy bills. You know, dads love to think about energy bills and how much, you know, that open refrigerator probably cost me a buck, you know, when we were out of, out of and it's like, what in the world? Who left the refrigerator open? It's a draft. And so we would close the windows, close the, don't leave the door wide open when it's negative 10 degrees outside. And that's just simple rule of thumb. Well, the same is true with our spiritual lives. The devil wants us to violate the parameters of what is healthy and whole in our life. So he gives us a framework. For instance, if you have a grievance, someone harms you, he says, forgive them. If you don't forgive them and you hold a grievance, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment actually opens a door in your life. It's like cranking open the window and propping it open on a freezing cold day. And you're shocked to find a snowdrift. Well, it's not that God wants a snowdrift in your life. What he has given you is a proper response to the enemy's threats. When the enemy's coming down that road straight at you with his semi-truck, he says, this is how you handle it. And there's various tactics the enemy has that we are not to be ignorant of. So I'm saying it this way. He gains a place of oppression. He doesn't move in and possess our life, but he can oppress and influence our life in and through toeholds, footholds, footholds undealt with become strongholds. And the enemy begins to impact our life in a way that he has really, truly no legal reason to if we are walking in health and wholeness. But because we have swerved from a white line and violated God's commands over our life, he gains a legal position of influence to press against us and to tactically undermine our life. Well, let's not allow him to do that. All we have to do when we have an open window is in the name of Jesus, shut it. But we have to know it's open, we have to acknowledge it, and we have to shut it. And then moving forward, don't open it anymore. Let's keep on that white line. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. It's an interesting statement. My mom used to always quote this. It used to scare me, actually. It's like, Eric... You don't go to bed at night, you know, angry at your brother because then the devil could gain place. <laughs> and so I literally did not go to bed until I had made something right. And believe me, that wasn't easy when it was my brother. I was like, I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, I forgive you. You know, that type of a thing. But I didn't want to give the devil place. I didn't know exactly what that meant. And I, it's sort of hard to describe it at all anyways, but it is a legal ability to influence and to counter the work of grace in your life. Well, then be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath, nor give place to the devil. 
Here's another illustration of that that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Listen to why. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. And what's interesting, every time I read that, I want to say, I, I think we may be ignorant of his devices. I don't think we recognize that swerving from that white line actually is part of his device. And the reason we need to forgive is so that we can keep on that white line and not allow the devil to take advantage of us. So his game, to get you to blink, wince, draw back, shrink back, swerve off the white line so that he can gain a place through which to oppress you, undermine you, and counteract the work of the Spirit of God in your life. We're playing a game of chicken, guys, whether we want to or not. I recognize this game is very unattractive to us at every level, and I have no interest in playing it either. And I wish the devil would just, you know, hang out in hell and, you know, harm anyone he wants to down there and leave us alone. But he has an agenda to counteract the work of grace in this world. He hates our Savior, and therefore he hates us. His way at getting at our Savior is to get at us. And so just as many of you as parents could recognize the way he gets to you is by harming your kids. You harm my kids, and I, as a parent, get really upset about that. And that's the same thing you see in the kingdom dynamic. The enemy is after us. And so we got on that white line, we gave our life to Jesus, and he immediately situated himself with his headlights straight at us, roaring his engine. He's like, you dare come in this direction. This is my kingdom, my world. I rule down here. How dare you stand against me? And our impulse is to pull off to the side of the road. It's like not to go straight at this. And God is saying, come on, put your foot on the gas and trust me. He has nothing on you. Don't listen to his bluff. So devil tactic number one, fear. Classic. I mean, this is what a roaring engine is meant for. So here's a line that could you know, sounds very similar to something the devil has whispered to you. You stay on that white line and you will die. I'll mow your little smart car down with my monster truck. And don't you feel like you have a little smart car <laughs> as you're going along here? And uh, now, if any of you have a smart car, I'm not trying to criticize smart cars. <laughs> they just aren't that, you know, intimidating. And so if you feel like you have a smart car, you're like, you know, this little toy thing that you're driving around, and the enemy's like, vroom, vroom, with his monster truck that has wheels bigger than your entire car. Can you understand why a Christian might want to veer off to the side and say, I, I, I'm not really set up to take that on. But that's because the devil wants to convince you that you are nothing but a smart car. You see, when the devil is working on us, he's working on us like he did the Israelites. Remember those spies that were sent in? And God says, take the land, stay on the white line and just, you know, take the land. It's like, have you seen what's in this land? We got a headlights, you know, staring straight at us. They're cities that reach, their walls reach up to the heavens and they have giants in them. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We're like smart cars in their sight. They're monster trucks. Keep your left wheel on the middle line and trust me. But they stayed in the wilderness, and died there because of unbelief. You see, they swerved from the center line of faith and trust, knowing that their God 
is greater than that bluster of the enemy. You see, when you feel like a smart car, it's really hard to stay on that center line. You need to know that the enemy has nothing on you. The lion's roaring. Have you ever, and I, I don't, I, I tried to do a quick study on this and I didn't get anything that was helpful, but that there is something about a lion's roar that in and of itself, because of its bassy sound to it, actually has, we have an instinctive terror that arises in us. It is very intimidating, and psychologically, if someone was in like 20 feet of a lion's roar, it actually paralyzes them if it comes out of nowhere, and they weren't expecting it, and it shuts their body down. It is so fearful and terrifying if you're not expecting. If I, if I said, I'm going to play a little audio clip of a lion's roar, you'd probably be fine, but you would probably go, whoa, that's pretty cool. I mean, it is. It's, it's a powerful sound, but it is deafening. You could hear it, some people said, two to five miles away. So it's like any animal in the animal kingdom understands that lion is saying, this is my territory, guys. I rule over all the territory. You hear my voice, and you know I'm ruling here. It is deafening, intimidated, and paralyzing. It is meant to declare territory ownership and to threaten any beast desirous of challenging that territorial claim. And the moment you get on that white line, what do you hear? You hear the lion roar. It's like, are you serious? You actually think that you can get down this white line? Don't you see what's standing in your way? The enemy has his big monster truck and his left tire just sitting there right on. It's like, are you dumb enough, Eric, to think that you could get through me? You see, what do you believe? Do you believe the enemy actually can hold that line? If you keep going forward, what do you actually believe? Do you believe the enemy will win in a, in a head-on collision with you? Who are you? Is it just you, the little smart car? Or are you clothed in something much greater? You see, when you're headed down that white line, you are clothed in Jesus Christ. And I can guarantee you something right now. If you keep going forward and you don't blink, you don't wince, you don't draw back, you don't shrink back, you don't swerve off that white line, I can tell you who will swerve. It's not going to be you. The enemy, and I'm not just going to say will swerve, he must swerve. He cannot stay in your path. When you deliberately choose to resist, which is the term the Bible is going to use, when you submit to God and you resist that devil, when you stick your fender straight towards his, he must swerve. But you need to know that. As you're going down this line, this white line of life, there's a lot of roar. There's a lot of bluster. There's a lot of noise trying to get you to swerve. The question is, do you believe your God? Don't let him smell your fear. I remember it was like a classic mom line when I was growing up. It's like, well, they can smell your fear, Eric. Just, you know, and I got this big dog going, and I, well, how in the world am I not supposed to have it? And so I was doing some study even on the smell of fear, and I don't think it, there is actually a smell uh, to fear from what I can understand, but there is a, the ability that animals, certain animals have to read the behavior of fear. And I would say that's probably exactly what the devil has. If the devil senses that you're giving way to fear, he knows he has you, and he knows you're going to swerve. And so he's going to call your bluff as a believer. 
and he will stay on that white line as long as he can to get you to swerve. You see, if he senses in your writing, you know, you're like a little jittery as you're going down, he knows he's got you because fear will not stay on that center line. Fear will swerve you off, which is why God is going to say, hey, let's have none of that in our life. You see, we are not ruled by fear. We're ruled by faith. Do you know that your God is greater? You see, if you knew that that enemy had to swerve and must swerve, you would not fear him. But if you think that he is greater than you and you actually feel like the smart car and you allow fear to overrule you, you will swerve. Fear is not your friend. So the devil is simply trying to break through the faith shield. Fear is a dead giveaway that his tactic is indeed working. Devil tactic number two, pride. It's funny because these young boys, that is exactly what motivates them is pride. The reason they will not swerve is because of pride. You have a reputation to uphold. You can't be the chicken. Cover up your mistake, cloak your insecurities, mask your sin. It's the only way to preserve your dignity. It's interesting, but to stay on that white line, you need to be humble. Isn't that a funny statement? Because in the game of chicken, the only ones who stay on the white line are the arrogant ones. But in our game, which we did not invite, to stay on that white line, you actually need to be humble. And when you make a mistake, you need to acknowledge it. See, the enemy is trying to play pride to get you to swerve. And in, in our game, pride is what brings us off the white line. And so we have to actually humble ourselves and acknowledge our weakness, that apart from Christ, we cannot do this, that if I have harmed someone, I need to come to them and seek their forgiveness, that I need to make things right. It's pride that will actually swerve me. It'll open up a window and the cold draft will come in. The enemy's baiting me to try and get me to give way to pride so that he can gain a place. First Peter 5, 5 through 7, that roaring lion passage I read earlier, this is right before it. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Devil tactic number three, grievance. I can't believe you were treated that way. You need to get even Stevens on this one. Do you remember uh, Hamilton? Uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton died in a uh, duel with uh, Aaron Burr. Uh, and I mean, that is the dumbest way to die. And that's the game of chicken for young idiots. It's what it is. It's like my dignity uh, and I must stand my ground. And so uh, from what I understand, Alexander Hamilton didn't uh, shoot his gun, but Aaron Burr, of course, didn't know if Alexander was going to shoot his gun. So he shot his and killed him and went down as the ultimate villain in history when in actuality they were both playing chicken. You don't do this, but it's this issue of grievance, of dignity, of pride. This is what leads to this stupidity. And the enemy is gloating over his success because if he can bait us in this way, we are swerving from our intention. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven the one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Forgiveness is a critical thing that we function with to stay on the white line. This is the only way we can do this, is to actually keep a clean heart 
and to not allow the bait of the enemy. The enemy loves to like throw a manure pile on your front doorstep and you step out in the morning. It's like, it's like oh, oh, who did that? And then we're oh, those neighbors on there. And then what, what are we going to do? Get back at them? But we have a grievance. And what you're supposed to do is you step in a pile of manure and you're like, well, well praise God. Praise God, we got some good manure for the garden. Uh, because that's how we do it. We take what the enemy means to harm us and we use it to fertilize our garden. We get some really good green crops out of this, guys. And so our tactic of the, as, as Christians is completely opposite of what the enemy's trying to bait us towards. We will not fall for his schemes. We are not ignorant of his devices. Oh, it's the old manure trick. Ah, I've seen this one before. What's my job? To give thanks, to rejoice, and to then till this into my garden to get some really good crops. You see, this is the Christian response, but we oftentimes swerve. And the enemy's like, ah, I got him. The game of chicken, guys. And gals. Devil tactic number four, distraction. You can focus on this Jesus stuff again when you get through this busy stretch. Ah, oh, guys, that's swerving off the white line. You don't ever put off the Jesus stuff. There is never a reason to do it. In the busiest time of your life, you must take time for Jesus. That's the way you make it through those difficult stretches. When the enemy gets you to justify that, yeah, you just don't have time for this, he is swerving you. He's, he's jokingly, you know, going down that white line laughing, going, chicken! And meanwhile, you've swerved. What are you doing? God says to stay true to that line. Stay focused on him. He is your life. Matthew Henry says, the design of Satan in raising persecutions against the faithful servants of God is to bring them to apostasy or to get them off the white line by reason of their sufferings and so to destroy their souls. The bait away from the white line, fear, pride, grievance, distraction, there's more, but like self-indulgence, self-pity, classic tactics of the enemy. If he can get you to indulge, it's like, hey, just a little for you. You veer. And this is his tactic. He's very good at it. He's been doing it for 6,000 years. We've only been around a few, right? We're not as good at the tactics game as he is. He's a master politician. He's a legalist. He knows exactly how to get his avenue. That's why we must lean on something ancient. It's called the word of God. We lean on one who is greater, smarter, and wiser than the one who's coming against us. And he says, keep your tire on that white center line. But God, wait, wait, wait. And he goes, keep your tire. I'm greater than him. I've defeated him. He, he's going to swerve, okay? You got to trust me on this one. You just keep going straight and watch what he will do. Your confidence is in me. I am greater than him. He is scared to death of me. And so you keep going. I am your clothing. I am the vehicle in which you are driving. And you will watch and see what he will do. Calling the enemies bluffs. Don't listen to the alarms. When Ellerslie was starting, we had so much noise that went off. We were traveling the world and speaking to tens of thousands. Leslie and I were. And I would have thought, this is my mindset, is that in coming off the road and speaking to all these people that the enemy would have been applauding. Because all we're going to be dealing with here, you know, like 50 to 100 people at once. It's like, come on, that's not that big of a deal. 
And I have never heard so much noise in my life as that season that we were headed in to starting Ellerslie. And it was like all hell was just, you know, clanging cymbals. And one of the things that we came to, and I still remember, it was weeks before we were starting. I remember where we were. We were in the 300 uh, dorm wing and we were having a, a staff meeting. And I said something like, okay, here's what we know. The enemy's not happy about what we're doing, and he's making a lot of noise. Now, I don't know if he thinks we're buying the noise and it's going to stop us from doing this, but we're not going to listen to the noise. So when he sets off his alarms, we're going to call his bluff, and we're going to know that they are false alarms. Even And then we were praying, and an alarm goes off in the building. The most bizarre thing, I've, I've never heard so many alarms as when I'm headed into a new season, just things will go off. So... The other day, we're headed into what I'm going to call a new season at Ellerslie. This is a transformation season. I mean, Leslie and I are moving our family to the campus. This is not a small thing for us. We're renovating the campus. It's a complete remodel. It's a new season for us. So Leslie and I took all last Sunday in prayer, and it was a powerful day of prayer, strategic praying for what we're headed into. And we, we really, I mean, we turned on our headlights on bright, and we roared our engine, our, our spiritual engine. It's sort of like, just to let the enemy know, and we're going to be on this white line, and we're going here. And, I, you know, I guess the enemy doesn't like that when you roar a little. And this has happened so many times in Ellerslie history. If you, if you know Ellerslie history, it was July 4th of the first semester. Uh, we started in so 2010, July 4th, 2010. I gave a message called Immovable, and it was about uh, building our, our house upon a rock, and when the winds and the rains beat, we will not be moved. And so I made a statement like, we will not be moved! And that day we had a flash flood, and my basement flooded. In that same first year, I gave that message over and over and over again, and I, I had to get up the guts to do it. It was a white line message. It's like, I'm not moving off this white line. I preached that six times, and I had six floods in my house every time I would preach it. Sunday this last week, we had, I didn't preach a message, right? I was just praying. We had a flash flood in Colorado. I don't know if you guys remember that. And it was a very intense rain. Uh, the power went out here on the campus. Where we were, we're in this rental house, and it's a pouring deluge, right? I mean, that's not a time for a fire alarm to go off, but our fire alarms go off in the rental house. Why? Because there is some kind of hole in the roof and it was pouring down and it short-circuited our fire alarm system and all the fire alarms went off. Not lost on me. I got a roaring lion who is trying to distract me. You see, I, I've always wondered, it's like, why does the enemy do this? Does it actually gain him any ground to do this? And it, here's my statement to that. It only gains him ground if we fall for the bluff. If we don't, guess who gains the ground? We do. See, we get stronger when we stay on the white line. What does it prove? He swerves. He swerves! That's right, but you'll only know that when you stay true. The enemy is bargaining. He's a, he's a gambler. And he is gambling that you're going to swerve. And if you swerve, he's got you. Because now you're not sure if he would, would have swerved. And you doubt and you question everything. But when you stay true to that center line, guess what? You will see the enemy swerve. And when you see the enemy swerve, your faith indexed increases. 
your confidence in God's word increases. But the only way to go through that is to go through it and call his bluff. I still remember I was standing in the, uh, the garage. The alarms were so loud in this house. I have never heard fire alarms so loud as what we were engaged with in this rental house. I think they've souped up alarms uh, systems. I have some old ones in my house now. And they're like, you know, they're loud. And I'm not happy to have them, but I can stand under it and try and fix it. You cannot even be near these fire alarms. They were so ear piercing. And so the entire family in the middle of this downpour is out in the cars uh, because even in the garage, which didn't have a fire alarm, it was so loud. So I'm out in the garage trying to turn off a breaker to see if we can deal with this. And I was on the phone with Leslie. So we're on the phone uh, during this, even though she's about 20 feet away in a car. And I said, okay, tactics. We know that this is a bunch of noise. So what do we do? We rejoice. So we gave a prayer of thanksgiving and rejoicing in this moment with the, this pouring rain, I mean, flooding rain and this fire alarm going off. And it was right after we finished that the fire alarms turned off. Kip was upstairs and he took a battery out of one. And after I'd turned off the breakers, like, the whole thing went down. It's like, oh, praise God. <laughs> he swerves. Call in the enemy's bluffs. Don't listen to the alarms. He's roaring his engine. He's flashing his headlights. He's doing whatever he can to get you distracted. You stay true to the truth. I don't care what he is saying, what he's claiming, what he's doing, how he's honking. He's, he has all sorts of honks on his, his horn system is quite elaborate. What's the good of an alarm? It is seeking to legally bypass the faith shield. He cannot get through your shield of faith. He cannot. Legally, he has no way of getting through. The only thing you can do is turn your shield to the side. And that's what distraction is. You see, when you legally turn it, when you legally open up the window, he's like, gotcha. You are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. Stay true to that center line. Ephesians 6. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. I'm going to emphasize the word all. There is not one fiery dart that actually can reach you. There is not one monster truck of the enemy that actually will crash into you. Your job is to call his bluff and to hold that faith up strong and say, no, not moving from the center line. I know what you're up to, enemy, but you're only getting me more confident. James 4, 6 through 7, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God, turn on your brights, honk your horn with faith, stay true to that center line, left tire right on it, and he will swerve. The enemy will swerve. Luke 10, 19, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, monster trucks, and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your tires, oh, feet, shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Uh, shortly, yeah, I know, he's right up ahead. You keep true to that center line and you will crush that enemy beneath your tires.
Remember, you are the one driving the crusher. Doesn't that sound like one of those things if you're in some arena, you know, and they have all sorts of monster vehicles, it's like, and the crusher! And the crusher comes out, and it's like 10 times the size of all the other vehicles. And guess who's in that? Uh, that's us, guys. We are in the crusher! If you're in the crusher, I mean, you're the, your little smart car's in the crusher, right? You feel so small as a smart car, right? And the enemy looks so big in his monster truck. But when you're in the crusher and you're up about 300 feet in the air looking down and you like have satellite view of him down there, he's like a little ant. You're like, mow him down. You have authority. Don't forget it. Stanley Petroff calling the bluff. It's interesting because our hero in this story is a Soviet in 1983 pretty extraordinary. And I want you to put your, uh, yourself in his position. It's a pretty interesting stay on the white line sort of story. But we have highest tensions between the Soviet Union and the United States of America. And both of us have just amassed a great deal of nuclear missiles, and they're aimed directly at each other. It's a very dark time. The Soviets, uh, based on certain things, certain threats uh, that the United States has done, were actually expecting imminent attack from the uh, United States of a first strike nuclear uh, war. And so the, the Soviet Union was on high level alert at this exact time in 1983. I was 12 at this time. And I... The Soviet Union had just shot down a Korean airliner with a United States representative, uh, legislator uh, on it. And so, I mean, everything is, and so they are actually expecting some kind of retaliation from the United States at this time. Stanley Petrov is in one of those bunkers where he is surveying and, and watching, you know, some kind of uh, digital map of the United States of any movement. And what shows up is an actual nuclear warhead being shot somewhere out of like, I think, North Dakota, and then four more following it that are headed towards the Soviet Union. His job was to actually notify his officials. No one actually had a red button because they didn't want to put any person in that control. They threatened that there was a red button, but there actually was never actually armed. So he, his job was to tell his superiors, his superiors were supposed to push the proverbial red button and launch a direct attack immediately, because you don't have a lot of time. If you're going to be hit by nuclear warheads, then you're destroyed. So we need to destroy them at the same time. Stanley Petrov, Stanislav, Stan, I guess we call him Stanley, Stanley Petrov ponders the situation. He knows what he's supposed to do. And he sees this threat coming. He sees the headlights of the semi coming straight at him. And he thinks the United States has hundreds of nuclear warheads. If they were actually issuing a first strike, they would not just send one and then with four stragglers behind. This doesn't make sense. So he hesitates, he pauses, and he does not notify his superiors. And he actually ends up deciding not to notify his superiors because he knows that they are under direct command to push the red button if he tells them what is happening right now. And he doesn't do it. Later, it's discovered that Stanley was correct. These weren't nuclear warheads. It was some sunlight glaring off high clouds 
and the Soviets had a problem in their monitoring system that they quickly fixed. But literally, Stanley Petrov was seconds away from actually reporting to his superiors, which would have led to a destruction of the world we live in when I was 12. And this man did not swerve from the white line. It's a a pretty extraordinary story if you think about it, that one of these stories that most of us have never even thought of or heard of, Stanley Petrov, he had to choose to stay true to something, to not fall for the bluff. Here's our Stanley Petrov, good-looking guy. So, key moment in my life, I've oftentimes said the enemy has had a couple conversations with me. They were one-way conversations where the devil's talking to me, sort of like with his roaring horn, as he's coming straight for me in his semi. And when we first started in ministry, we had so much flack, so much attack. Leslie had constant physical challenge. And I felt like the devil said, Eric, give up this message and I'll let go of you. In other words, I'll let you, you know, drive your you know, little smart car. And I won't harass you anymore. I'll, I'll let you go. That was so attractive to my soul. I was so tired of the honking, the blaring, and the roaring. I just, I didn't know it was going to be this intense. And I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker, guys. I know you're extremely disappointed. But we set up a time with Leslie's parents where we said, we, we need to talk with you guys. And what's weird is in hindsight, I think that they probably thought we were announcing that we were pregnant. But... <laughs> It wasn't in our mind because we were not doing well at the time. So we sat down with uh, Rich and Janet, and they're like leaning in, all excited, and said, um, I feel like, this is what I said, I, we're, we're stepping out of ministry. Uh, I feel like the devil's made it clear that if we just will give this up, stop speaking this message, that he'll just leave us alone. And I, we just really need that. We need to, we need to stop this. Uh, I mean, it was just so hard key moment in my life, Leslie's mom looks at me, probably disappointed that she's not going to be a grandma yet. (laughs) And she says, Eric, he's lying to you. You know too much. He will not stop until he kills you. That's all I needed. My right hand balled up into a fist and I stood up and I said, we are not stopping. And right now, that's sort of what you need to. He's lying to you guys. What he's trying to convince you to do is veer. To get off the clear course that he has assigned you. Yes, there's a lot of noise here. But greater is he who is in you than he that is coming against you down this road. If God be for you, who can possibly stand against you in this game of chicken? No weapon, no monster truck that has been formed against you will prosper against the crusher. You need to know where you live, who you believe in. He is, in fact, victorious. He is triumphant. He is a liar. Don't fall for his bluff. The devil is seeking to veer you off the white center line, and he is roaring his engine loudly to do it. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. 
the white line tactic. Be sober, be vigilant, resist him, steadfast in the faith. There's your list right there. This is how we do it. Be sober. A great way of saying this is be steady. Remember Annie's message, Mr. Steady? Be steady. The enemy must swerve. Hold it together, guys. I know, the enemy's making a lot of noise right now, but keep that steadiness together. Be sober-minded about this. Just be rational even. I mean, that's all you have to do on Father's Day. It's a great message. Be rational. We, we fathers love that. Be vigilant. Be aware of his bluff. Don't be intimidated by his loud engine roar. Resist him. Don't back down. Put your foot on the spiritual gas pedal and defy him. Steadfast in the faith. Don't blink. Don't wince. Don't second guess. Remember, you are in the crusher. This is how we win this, guys. High stakes, high reward. Maximizing the enemy's foolishness and turning it into massive grace gains. My, one of my pictures for this is the enemy's like hurling baseballs at us. And they hurt. Have you ever been pelted by a baseball? It doesn't feel good. But here's what God has given us. He's saying, now pick up the bat that I've given you. And so when he starts throwing baseballs at you, what do you do? Uh, I just got to run there. Well, and the enemy's like, Ugh. and so he throws another one. You know, I just got two home runs off this guy. You see, you can hit home runs off the enemy's attacks if you leverage your baseball bat. See, if you just sit there and go, ah, oh, oh, eh, all day long, the enemy's going to defeat you but he has given you what you need to actually leverage the enemy's working into advantage for your team. This is the kingdom of heaven. God turns all that the enemy means for evil into good. This is his pattern. He takes the enemy's nefarious wickedness, his boasting, and he transforms it into a greater faith for you. How did that work? When you are weak, his strength is made perfect. You see, in these moments when you feel like the smart car, but you choose to believe that you are in the crusher, you will indeed see the enemy crushed. You will see his plans foiled. You will see them turned back on his head. And you will gain greater grace. You will gain greater strength. You will gain home runs in your life. You might as well just give thanks right now ahead of time. As you start to hear the roar in the distance, it's like, thank you, Lord. I get grace out of this. I get to grow in faith through this. This is the stuff that makes the great stories of history. When we keep our left tire on that white center line, that is every story that you esteem throughout history. That's all they were doing, is they were sober and vigilant. They resisted the devil steadfast in faith. That's what they did. It's the recipe of success. It's basically as simple as, okay, when the devil is trying to play chicken with you, just keep your tire on the white center line and mow him down. That's how it works, guys. I know it's an oversimplification of some of our complex lives, but that's what it is. The devil's noise maybe looks different for all of us, and maybe the color of our smart car is a little different. You have a red one. This guy has a blue one. There's a yellow one over here. There's a bright green one over here. We might look a little different in package, but we're the same thing. We've all been designed to find ourselves by faith in the crusher. And then to believe him 
along this journey that he wins. And the enemy, not just that he will swerve, because he will, but that he must swerve. He has no legal ability to stay on that line if you press your faith forward. And that, my friends, is good news. We have Jesus, the victor, the one who has triumphed as our personal Savior. Praise God for that. Father, I pray that you would make this message practical for our souls, that we would comprehend it, and it would be moved into a place of action for us, that we would stay true to what you have called us, that we would not fall for the enemy's bait, that we would not swerve, that we would not draw back, but that we would stay true to the challenge before us, that we would believe the word as revealed in your word, that we would trust that you are faithful and true. Lord, as we worship you now, I pray that it would be genuine, an outflow of just recognizing the beauty, the power, and the triumph of your great victory. We love you and trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.